You're listening to the audio sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Marble Falls, Texas. For almost 130 years, FBCMF has served Marble Falls and the greater Highland Lakes area faithfully through children's programs, youth activities, and adult discipleship. We invite you to join us each and every Sunday morning at 9 and 10.30 a.m. for deep fellowship, rich worship, and a spirit-filled message. For those who find themselves unable to attend on a Sunday morning, we stream those services. Simply visit fbcmf.live during either of our service times to view it. Never miss an archived sermon by subscribing to our podcast on either SoundCloud or iTunes. And to learn more about our church or watch a video version of this and other sermons, please visit us online at fbcmf.org. So I was 12 years old when our kitchen flooded, and I'll tell you how it happened. Um, My mom was going away for the day, and she had to do a lot of chores outside, and so she told my sister and me to clean the house while she was gone. I was washing the dishes, and my sister was bringing laundry through the kitchen, and and I grabbed the um, sprayer, and I gave her a little spray as she walked through. She came back through then, and she had gotten a cup from the bathroom, and she filled it at the faucet, and when she was coming back through, she threw the cup of water on me, so I sprayed her again. She came back through again, and this time, instead of having a cup, she had a big pitcher of water, and she threw that on me, and so I sprayed her a lot. And on and on it went like that. Fast forward, um, after a long time, the master of the house returned, and to see how the uh, servants were being faithful and there was much weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, and that's the sermon today. So, uh, the, I don't know what it is. Maybe y'all can have the answer to this. But what is it about us sometimes that struggles to do what's right when nobody is looking? Um, when the master leaves, when the, the, the phrase, when the cat is out, the mice will play, it, it's not just a saying, but, but there's a temptation there. There's a real struggle that we oftentimes meet and uh, where, we, where we tend to be lazy or we tend to shrink back in our responsibilities when we think that nobody is really watching us or that we, when we think we can get away with something. Megan was reminding uh, uh, my daughter Tess of this this past week, sharing with her that integrity is doing what is right even when nobody is looking because eventually, it may be a short time or a long time, but eventually you're going to be found out for whether or not you were responsible, whether or not you did well with what you were given. Um, I love the story of how Six Flags became more than just a summer job for a member of our church named Larry Cochran. Some of you know Larry Cochran. He is the father of Matt Cochran, and uh, Larry Cochran is married to Pat. Matt Cochran, his son, is a wonderful Sunday school teacher in our church and a deacon. And uh, Larry Cochran, as some of you may know, is the retired CEO of Six Flags. And, uh, and, but he didn't start out as that. Um, he was at the lowest of the low, and uh, one day he, he had a day off in the summertime, and he came up to get his paycheck. And when he came up to get his paycheck, he went into the bathroom, and when he was in the bathroom, the whole sewer had overflowed in this particular bathroom. The toilets were overflowing, the sewer was backing up, and on his day off, he didn't go and get somebody else to go in and clean it all for him. Instead, what he did was he went and got the mop buckets, and and he began scrubbing the whole bathroom. Larry Cochran is a college student, cleaning all of it. 
Um, and, and even when he didn't think anybody would notice or anybody, he was just doing it because it was right. It was the right thing to do. Well, sure enough, somebody walked in and the person who walked in was the owner of Six Flags at the time. And into that particular bathroom, into that particular moment, and he saw this young man on the floor scrubbing all of this, and he, he said, what are you doing? And, and Larry looked up at him, and, and this is what he said. Um, if I brought my family here, I wouldn't want them to experience this. And that means I don't want any family to experience this. Um, families deserve something better from us. And he said, and so I'm just trying to, to clean it. And so the master of Six Flags said, very good, I'm gonna give you more talents. <laughs> Come with me. And sure enough, he climbed the ladder, climbed the ladder, and he became the, the CEO of all of, of Six Flags. And so it's just such a neat story. And, and it, share, it, it reminds us that eventually, eventually we are discovered. It may be a short amount of time, but eventually we are all discovered and revealed for what we do. And that's especially true with our relationship with God. And it's especially true and it rings out why Jesus would tell such a story as the parable of the talents. This is the, the concept behind all of it. The context that surrounds this parable is the return of King Jesus. All through chapter 24 and chapter 25 in Matthew, it's all about the fact that Jesus is coming back. There's going to be an end to time. There's going to be an end to nations and end to the world. And the thing that's going to be standing is God, and his culture, and his kingdom, and we're gonna be held accountable for what we do. And when Jesus returns, it's going to be wonderful for a lot of people, but for a lot of other people, it won't be so good. And Jesus doesn't want anyone to be caught in this moment, and so he says to them this story, and he tells the parable of the talents. In the time Jesus was telling it, a talent meant a sum of money, but we have kind of evolved it and adapted it to mean abilities. Or, or, or to mean like um, musical talent or intellectual talent or athletic talent. But I want you to know that either way you go, you're safe in your interpretation of it. If you say that it, you know, the master gives you a sum of money or the master gives you a certain amount of abilities and, and, and skill, regardless, the, the point still rings out very true. God is the giver and he has very serious expectations about what every one of us are supposed to be doing with the gifts that he has given to us. Um, the text says that the master gives the gifts, he gives the talents, and then he leaves. And they're left all alone. You ever feel like that? God says, I want you to go and do this. And, and then somehow there's distance between you and, and, and God. I remember when I went to be a missionary at South Padre Island, and, um, and I was uh, just finishing up high school, and I went down, and uh, the pastor is my mentor, uh, Dr. Bruce Webb, and he took me the first day out on the beach of South Padre Island, and, uh, and, and I said, awesome, what am I supposed to do? And he said, when all of the people come out on the beaches, I want you to tell all of them about Jesus, and he gave me a bologna sandwich and drove away. And, and, and it was like, ah, uh, and, and, and I was trying to figure out, well, how do I do it? And, 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 and he wasn't there. And then slowly though through the summer, he taught me and taught me and taught me until I was able to be comfortable in the end. But have you ever felt that, that you have this responsibility and then there's distance between you and God? The, the idea 
occurred to Jesus' audience because oftentimes what a master would do is put his lieutenants or his um, uh, sergeants in charge of things, and then the, the master would leave. In 4 BC, uh, the son of Herod the Great, um, Archelaus, was put in charge of all of northern Palestine, but when a new emperor, a new Caesar came to the throne, he had to go all the way to Rome to make sure that his ruling was still okay and, and it still jived with what the new Caesar, Augustus, wanted. And so Archelaus went to see Augustus, but before he left, he put certain lieutenants in charge of all of his rule in northern Palestine, and he told them, when I leave, I want you to imitate me. You've seen my politics, you've seen my policies, you've seen what I say and do, and I want you to do and, 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 and to use the power that I'm giving you in the same way that you've seen me use my power. I, in fact, I want you to imitate me. That's what you're supposed to do. Um, what do we do with the distance sometimes that we feel with God? Uh, we, now, we know that, that really spiritually, we're never, that God is never really distant. He gives us the Holy Spirit, right? And the Spirit is with us all the time. But at the same time, God does give every one of us in here just a certain amount of distance and space so that we can be free, so that we're not manipulated, so that we can grow and so that we can take our talents and develop those talents. It's, it's like this, parents, when you want your baby to walk, eventually you have to stop carrying the baby. You have to put the baby on the ground, and then if you want them to walk, even though you're giving them your hands and you're walking, and as wonderful as that is um, as a parent to walk alongside your baby, if you want them to walk on their own, eventually it's hard, but you have to even take away your hands. And then parents, eventually what you have to do is, is take your child to school, and then you very tearfully wave goodbye, and then you, you say, if any child does something to you, you tell me, you know, when you get home and, and all the things that kindergarten parents do. And then eventually, parents, what you have to do is give your child even more distance and even more space when you hug them and you say, I'm so proud of you. And as you go to school and college or as you go to the, the, the work that God has for you, do well and you give them just enough space so that they can do exceptionally well God's distancing himself in this text is not a sign of God deserting us or a sign of abandonment, but, but it's the opposite. God's distancing himself is a sign of his love for us. And, and the idea, the thought that, well, Jesus hasn't come back yet, thank God, because the longer that Jesus takes to come back, y'all do realize this, then, then we have the opportunity, a great opportunity to do well with the talents that he's given us. And, and that means we get to take, if you're a five talent, a two talent, or a one talent person, you get to keep investing it. Therefore, if Jesus came back right now and some of you have buried your talent, pray he doesn't come right now. Get it out of the ground and begin doing something with it. Uh, God gives us space, and he waits, and he waits so that we have an opportunity to do great. I believe that we grow up um, under the loving eye of God, but not under the domineering thumb of God. And so what will we do with our freedom? And also, y'all, it's not just freedom, but God gives us space to find out what we're going to do with the gifts of the talents that he's given to us. The idea that every person here has been given a portion of something good and something very, very valuable. 
And God is wanting to see what you do that brings about more good and more value with what you've been doing, given, with the portion that you've been given. The servants were, were both equal and different at the same time. The philosopher Kierkegaard said, people are exactly alike and utterly different. And I know it's a paradox. How can we be alike and different at the same time? But that's kind of the way it is. It's a mystery that all of us here in this room, if we went through it and we found out all the ways that we are the same, there would be a whole bunch of them. But also, we're very different from one another too. And the same is true with these servants. We, we tend to focus on, well, they're, they're very different. One was given this, another was given that, and they had different abilities. But y'all, they were, they were alike too. They were equal in the fact that they were all given something that they didn't deserve. Without the master, all of them are equal in their nothingness. And that's equality with them. Also, each one of them knew the master. He had revealed himself to all of them and he had a relationship. Also, they were all equal in that the master believed that they were capable of doing something great with what he gave to them. They were equal in the, the mandate that they were supposed to do something great with what they had been given and that they would all be held accountable when the master returned. All of that is very equal. And in here, we could find some equality as well, but uh, obviously the, the differences shine through the text. One of them is given five talents, one of them is given two, and one of them is given one. And, and this idea of natural abilities is very different for all of us here and for all humanity. It's true that we are like snowflakes. None of us are exactly alike. Um, as hard as I run and as much as I tried to train, I'm just not going to beat Usain Bolt. Uh, I, I can't do it. He could beat me in a wheelchair and uh, I, I don't have the skills that he has. I don't have the skills that a lot of people have Humankind has not been created equal in, in, in that regard. We're equal in our dignity. We're equal in our worth, but, but, but really not in, in all of these other ways. Now, y'all, when we think about that, 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 the differences that we have, I want you to know that that is only, only frustrating to us when we play the comparison game. It's not frustrating when we don't. When the church comes together as we are together right now, all of our differentness comes together and, and, and together we're something greater than we are apart. We, we're a community of sharing and we share in our differentness and we share in all of our talents. Um, Scott McKnight is that author who wrote a book called The Fellowship of Different Difference. And so he says, you're different from you and you're different and you're, di you're all different. And together we are a fellowship of all of our difference. And it's exciting. It means that, that our talents can be celebrated. You don't have to be frustrated when you look around and see somebody else. In fact, you can say, you know what? When they combine with me in the fellowship of the church, then it means I kind of have their talent too. And I have their talent because we're all together in all of this. The question is not, are you the best? The question, y'all, really is, are you, are you your best? And, and whether you feel like a five-talent, a two-talent, or a one-talent person, you, you have to keep in mind that together we have eight talents. And your talent may just be the one that pushes us over the line of victory into success. That you have what it takes 
to help us to move forward as a group. And you are very special in that regard. And so the master's distribution of all of these talents is, is not an indication as to how much you're worth. That's what the world thinks. The world says you are worth only as much as the talent that you have, the amount of money that you have, or what you're able to contribute, that, that your worth is, is equal to your contribution to all of it. But that's the world's story. Y'all, it is far, far from God's story. What he says is it is an exciting thing for you to play a role at the eight talents of all the group. And the story begins with that kind of potential. And so the first two guys, they get it. And they were energetic and they were creative with their talents. And they, they modeled what they had observed in the life of the master. And they, they copied him. And, uh, and, and so with our talents, what we do is we copy Jesus. We pay very close attention to the, the model that he shared with his, pet, with his power and with his abilities and the pattern that we see in Jesus. And we say, ah, then with my power and my abilities, I'm going to model and imitate the, the, the pattern of Jesus Christ. And that's what we do. And, and then the cumulative effort of all of us in here doing well with what we have been given for the glory of God and for the master, knowing that we have nothing if it weren't for him, and we do it, the, the cumulative effort is exponential, guys. It really is amazing what we can do. But sadly, though, in, in verse 18, all of that gets very confused and goes haywire in the life of one of the servants, and it's so sad because it didn't have to be this way. The third servant he didn't even try to imitate the master, not even a little bit. He just buries it, he forgets it, and he walks away. And when I read that, and I read that the other two did well, then I want to ask about this third guy, what went wrong for you, dude? What went haywire in your heart and in your mind? How did you miss it so bad? Could you not see what other people were doing? Did, did you just ignore the master? What, what went wrong, y'all think? I think a lot of things went wrong. Here are some of them. I think one of the things that, that just he blew was he became ambivalent. You know, the seed of ambivalence is that sin when you just lose caring about stuff. It's, it's when you start ignoring things that you really ought to pay very close attention to, but you just ignore it. It's, it's not getting involved when you really need to get involved. You ever been in the situation and you hear some people in a group say something and what they're saying is very toxic, um, but you don't want to say anything, you don't want to speak out, and so you allow the toxicity of that conversation just to go on and you're just silent in it? It's, it's, it's the sin of ambivalence and it's the idea that, you know what, I probably should get involved. I need to speak out sometimes. Um, sometimes, y'all, silence is not golden, it's yellow. And, uh, and we need to speak out. But the ambivalence means it's when somebody is sitting on the sideline and, and the coaches really need them in the game. They need to be participating, but they're just sitting on the sideline, ambivalent to the whole movement of the kingdom of God or ambivalent to the movement of their church, and they're just sitting there. Or ambivalence is taking the safest route possible, the path of least resistance everywhere you go. So it's like Christians today who just don't really care. Also, another issue that's plaguing this guy that just goes haywire is he's scared. Or at least he says he's scared, right? 
He goes to, and he tells the master, I'm so fearful because I heard that you were uh, a, a man who is harsh and a man who is dishonest. And, uh, and, and that's what he says. You know what I think? I think that's hogwash. I think he's just throwing that against the wall to see if it sticks. I, 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 don't, I don't believe him. I think he's just trying to get out of trouble here. And I don't buy it. But I do know this. How unwise is it for him to try to blame the master on his downfall? He's the one who buries everything, but the master comes back and he says, oh, I knew that you were like this. You see what he's, he's blaming it on the master, isn't he? But let's say for a moment that he's sincere and that he really is scared about the, the master's harshness or the master's dishonesty. Well, what do we do with that? I think there are plenty of false narratives about God and speculations about God in our world. Since the very beginning, the devil has been spreading a ton of lies about God's harshness or about God's cruelty, and, and he spreads all of these lies all the time. And in fact, do you remember the lie that the devil told to Adam and Eve about God? He goes to Adam and Eve, and he, and he says, now, Adam and Eve, I know you want to be like God, but, but God doesn't want you to be like him, because being like him is awesome, and it's good, and he wants to keep all of that from you. So what you do is you go and you take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you bite from that and then you get to be like him. And, and then he can't hold you down anymore. He can't hold back all of the good things that he is. He can't keep it all from you. You see, the lie is that God is cruel and that God doesn't want good things for Adam and Eve. And, and, and they buy it. Jesus came to set the record straight about that lie when Jesus died on the cross, he corrected any accusation that God is harsh or that God is dishonest. Jesus corrected it. If God ever had a bad reputation, Jesus corrected it on the cross. The, distinct, the distortion of God was made right through Jesus. And so know this, that, that, that when we're trying to be good stewards of what God has given us, and when we fail, know that saying that, well, I didn't do well, and, and, and well, it's because God, I'm kind of afraid of you, doesn't hold any water at all because we know who God is through Jesus Christ. Well, I think that this guy also had this issue. Um, the, the unfaithful servant was lazy, lazy, lazy. He, and this is something that we seldom address in the church, but I think we need to talk about laziness. Do y'all? I think we need to talk about it sometimes. Think about the Adam and Eve story again for a second. How lazy were they? So the devil comes to them and he lies to them. And he says, God doesn't want you to be like him. Why didn't Adam and Eve go to God and say, question, the serpent says that, 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 you, that you don't want us to have good things and that you don't want us to have the kind of life that you have and that you're withholding from us? Is, is that true? Are you really like that? God would have immediately set the record straight. He would have told Adam and Eve, um, no, that's a pack of lies. It's absolutely wrong. God isn't like that, but they easily could have discovered that, but they gave zero effort. They gave no effort at all to discover what was true. And they lazily accepted without any investigation whatsoever what the, what the serpent had said, and then they acted on what the serpent said. 
And it reminds me of the servant in this text. All he had to do was figure, out, figure it out. He could have asked other people. He could have done something with it. He's lazy. That's the issue. There's a, a book that my family is reading, and I think it's just such a great book. In fact, it has a great title, and uh, here it is. I have it on the screen for you. I want you all to read it. It's called Do Hard Things. It, it keeps us from being lazy. Do hard things, and it, and it says that there are five kinds of hard things that you can do. The first kind of hard thing that, that you can do is do things that force you to break out of your own comfort zone. That if you've got into a moment in life and here's what seems easy and nice, you're just kind of comfortable with it. You gotta do something eventually, y'all, that breaks you out of it. But for instance, if you've ever in your heart longed to come to the altars and pray during an invitation, but you're, it's just uncomfortable, eventually do something hard. Break out of your comfort zone. The, the, it goes throughout your whole life. Number two, another thing, do hard things that go beyond what is expected or required of you. Um, they, they, you, you push the boundary and you go above and beyond. You do something hard in that regard. Number three, do hard things that are too big for you to accomplish alone, that you have to work with other people in order to do it. Number four, do hard things that do not pay off immediately, but you just do it because it's right. And later on in life, you might experience something good that comes from it, but but you're not doing it for any reward. There is no payoff that you're aware of, at least right then, and you're just gonna do it because it's good and noble and true. And it's hard to do that because what's easy is, is for us to do something when we immediately get a reward, immediately get a reward. But to do something and you're not gonna get a reward for it, you're just doing it because that's hard, and we do it. Number five, do hard things that challenge cultural norms and go against the flow. I like that. So it means this, men, as we come up on Father's Day, remind yourself that the culture of men that have been passed down to us is one of disrespecting women. And so men, what we do is we elevate our respect, our care for the dignity of women around us. It means women, there are things for you to do too. All of us come together and we push the boundaries of culture and even culture that's been passed on to us. We do hard things, y'all, and I think that went haywire in the life of the servant. The last thing that I think went haywire is this, and I think this is the greatest possibility that, that made him bury this thing God had given to him rather than do well with it. I think there was a seed of jealousy in his heart when he started looking all around. What do y'all think? Y'all think he was a little envious or jealous maybe? That when he saw someone who had five talents, Dang, somebody who had two talents and he sees what he has? I, I think if he did, there is no doubt that that's what made a huge contribution to his downfall and, utter, and, and, and uh, ultimately his demise. Focusing on what other people have is never going to be helpful to you. It's never been helpful to me. It takes our focus off of what God has given to me and and. And it takes my focus off on the mission that God has for me as well. This guy lost the mission when he compared what he had. And I think that this is obvious. And, and here's what happened to him. When he began to play the comparison game, he saw what they had. And then it made him think about the smallness of what he had. And when he saw 
and he started to feel like I have something that's very small and very little, then he felt like what I do with it doesn't matter. And he missed it in that. John Claypool talks about the being given small talents, and, uh, and, and here's what he said. I think it's a brilliant statement. He said, if I believe anything at all, it's this. In God's universe, there is nothing that is insignificant. The great things were, first of all, little things that were lifted up to God in reverence and gratitude and then used to the fullest. Isn't that great? That the, small, that the great things were once small things? That means it is a mistake, a great mistake, to think that anything that God has given you is insignificant. The one talent man failed to realize that and, and, and failed to realize that nothing that comes from the hand of the master ought to be discarded, buried, and ignored. I, I think of all the things that caused him to make a misstep, this was probably it. I, I, I love the story of a Nashville music publisher named Bob Benson who was thinking about what he had been given in life and how he needed to be faithful simply with what he had been given, not try to uh, look any, at anybody else, but just say, God, thank you for what you've given to me. I'm gonna do the very best I can with this. Now, if the, it's a great story, and if the one talent person were to realize this, I think it would make a difference, but this is what he said. He's a Nashville music publisher, Bob Benson, and he thought about this idea, and he tells the story about his son who was in a, a play at the end of the school year in his elementary school. His son's name was Mike, and Mike wanted a great part for the play that had a lot of lines and was kind of a lead role in the play, but instead his son Mike was given just a little bitty bit part. In fact, it only had two lines and it was given at the very end of the play after the climax, but the very end when the resolution kind of had already resolved itself and here are the two lines that his son was supposed to give. He said the production took place on a hot May evening and then he wrote in his journal after watching the play that night. He said, Mike was not the star, not by any means, but he waited faithfully, and when his moment came, he was ready. He said his lines, and he said them well, not too soon, not too late, not too soft, but he said them just right. And then Benson went on to reflect on his own life, and, and this is what he said. I am just a bit player too. Not a star in any sense of the word. But God gave me a line or two in the pageant of life. And when the curtain falls and the drama ends and the stage is vacant at last, I do not ask for the critic's rave or fame in any amount. My only hope is, is this, that I can hear from afar the voice of God saying, he said his lines, and he said them well, not too soon, not too late, not too loud, not too soft. He said his lines, and he said them well. If you ask me, when when my race is finally run and the master calls me home, I don't want to say that I pastored a mega church or that I pastored a little church. 
I don't want to say that I was the greatest pulpiteer that the church has ever seen. I want to do well in those things, but at the end of my run, what I hope can be said is this, that three things are intact in my life, that my marriage is intact, that my mind is intact, and that my ministry is intact, which means that I was simply faithful to all of you. That I was just faithful to every one of you here. And that means I would have been faithful to God who called me here. So what do you want the master to say about you when he returns? You've been listening to the audio sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Marble Falls, Texas. Never miss an archive sermon by subscribing to our podcast on either SoundCloud or iTunes. And to learn more about our church or watch a video version of this and other sermons, please visit us online at fbcmf.org.